Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. This morning, we are continuing part three in our series, Woven in Gospel. And today we're going to be talking about the experience. And we're going to start with the reading in the Gospel of Mark. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around and then in anger was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how to kill Jesus. Thank you, Alex, you handsome man, you. (laughs) This morning I'm going to talk about tricycles, family and friends, villains, riding a bike, learning another language, and teaching your kids how to ride a bike. Thus, a picture of the bike. I I was listening recently to... uh, I think it was an interview uh, by Father Richard Rohr, and he was talking about how we get to know God and Jesus and the gospel and how many times we have kind of a reductionist mindset where we think it's just this way and that way. But he said it's really like a tricycle. And he said the front wheel is experience. And he says in his own voice, now, wait, 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 I know what you're thinking there. That shouldn't be the front wheel because the second wheel or one of the other wheels on the tricycle is scripture. And then the third wheel is history or traditions. And they ask, well, why is experience the, the first wheel? Shouldn't it be scripture? And he says, you know, you would think so. But then you realize that every one of us looks at scripture through our experience. And that's why we have all the denominations that we have, right? If it was something that wasn't subjective to our understanding, our culture, and the things that we've gone through, there would only be one denomination. Everyone would believe the same thing. But people are diverse, and God deals with all of us in those diverse ways. And it's interesting because in the past, I don't know, month and a half or so, I've had a number of conversations with people who have talked to me about, you know, well, it's really important, Sam, that you do things in a certain way or or do things this way. And and they would always say, you know, you got to follow the scripture. And then inevitably they say, because one time 
this happened to me. And they would tell me about their experience, right? And, and it was almost like they didn't even realize that they were all, yeah, scripture, scripture, scripture. Why? Because I had an experience once that validated what I'm saying here. And, and so an experience is something that is important that we can't underestimate. Now, it's not alone. It's not just experience. It goes with the other two wheels, right? We have the scripture, and then we have the learning of those who have been following Jesus throughout the ages. And these are all part of how we learn about God, how we learn about Jesus, and how we learn about gospel. Now, in the reading just now in Mark, we, we see an interesting thing happening. And remember, we've been talking about how John's gospel is there to give us understanding not only of Jesus, but also, in a sense, have a spiritual commentary on the synoptics, the other three gospels. How John, years later, could look back and say, you know what, I want to make this clear and I want to make this well known. And so... I want to look at how he looks at this situation and what he's trying to tell us in this place. And Mark chapter 3 is a really interesting chapter because there's a couple of misconceptions that were had about Jesus by both his family and those who were around him. I said friends, but they were probably more those who were against him. But we see in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family, this is Jesus' family, heard it, they went out to seize him. Just think about that. We're going to go seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus' family was saying that Jesus was out of his mind. Why? Because he was so busy, he didn't even have time to take care of himself. He was so concerned with other people, he wasn't taking care of himself. And my goodness, this is, you know, 30 AD or ACE, right? It's, there's not a lot going on. It's not like he's got the internet to keep him busy, right? What is he doing? What are you doing with all your time? He was so busy out and about that his family thought, He's out of his mind. He, he's deprived of sleep or food. We need to rescue him. We also see that the scribes misunderstood him. In verse 22, the same chapter, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And, and so the family is saying, you're out of your mind. The, the scribes, the religious people are saying, you're full of demons. They're misunderstanding who he is. And we've seen in John's gospel, this commentary on the synoptics, that he starts to fill in these blanks. And that this mostly has to do with a misunderstanding of Jesus and his teachings. Who was he? Why is he here? What was he saying? And today, John will take us to the core of the Pharisees and their misunderstanding of Jesus. Now, the Pharisees are known, especially throughout the Synoptic Gospels, remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as kind of being the villains, right? They were his primary antagonists. And several 
There were several different religious groups at that time. The Pharisees were probably the most popular. There was the Sadducees, and there was the Essenes. And they're not mentioned in Scripture, which is interesting because there are some scholars that believe that John the Baptist actually associated with the Essenes because they came from the same region. But we don't have a lot of information about them, and they're not found in the Gospels. And so others who served in the religious communities included scribes, included priests, included law experts, those who were mattered or learned in the areas of the laws. But the Pharisees were kind of the fundamentalists, right? The Sadducees would be considered more the liberals. They were naturalists. They didn't believe in resurrection, angels, or spirits. We see that in Acts chapter 23. And in the Synoptic Gospels, the Pharisees are mostly these stock characters, these cardboard cutouts, these bad guys, so to speak. They're always against Jesus, but they're not presented in a very personal way. There is no Pharisee that is ever named in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And in every reference in Mark's Gospel, there is no use of the word in a singular tense. It's always plural. Now, a little history on the Pharisees. The Pharisees first appeared between the time of Ezra and Jesus. And to them, Israel's only hope was a strict interpretation and following of the law of Moses. Right? They were absolutely supposed to adhere to the law of Moses. And if they adhered to the law of Moses without fail, then God would restore them as a nation. That was their belief. It's interesting because there's even that kind of thought process in in the church where you hear people say, well, if you would keep the law perfectly, then you would be right before God. But Paul dispels that in the book of Romans as we've gone through. And there is no flesh that will be justified by any working of the laws because that's not how it works. But anyway, that was their biblical view. The Hebrew biblical scholar and professor David Flusser observed that by Jesus's time, the Pharisees had become recognized as the teachers of the masses, consciously identifying themselves with popular faith. They were the evangelicals of the day. They were the primary people and the primary voice of religion at that time for the nation of Israel as it was. They were the mainstream. If there was TV, they would be on the TBN channels. They would be the ones filling up the stadiums, having different crusades and so on, right? They would be the ones that everyone was listening to. Their voice was the most pronounced. Their main shortcoming, according to Jesus, was hypocrisy. That they were saying one thing, but they weren't living in compliance to even the things that they were saying. And we see this throughout the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew chapter 3, there's a bunch of woes that are given to the Pharisee. And one of them in verse 13 is, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow 
those who would enter to go in. See, the Pharisees had reduced religion to rules. Keep the rules and you will be right with God. With their rules, they felt they had religion all buttoned up. And religious people often like rules because rules make us feel good when we keep those rules that we like. And it gives us a feeling of we are okay. Why? Because I keep these rules. And again, the rules vary depending on society, culture, and things, and the interpretation of things. But it's that idea of, if I really keep these rules, then I'm good. But if you think about it, rule keeping is no more difficult than doing chores, right? You can do the rules and do the chores. I can take out the trash. I don't like to, but I can, right? I can do the dishes. I can, you know, sweep the floor. I can do those things, and it's just a matter of doing them, but I don't have to like any of them, right? It doesn't change my heart or character. I'm just doing the chores, and rules are very similar. I can do these things. Oh, I can read the Bible, and I can say my prayers, and I can go to church, temple, or mass, or whatever it is. I can do those things, but doesn't require a lot from me other than the act of doing those things. And so this was what the Pharisees were all about. Rules are not sensitive to how we feel about others. Keeping all the rules can make people feel good about themselves, but it doesn't change how we think and live. Now, Jesus didn't really criticize the Pharisees for their rule-keeping But what he did is he pointed out that it wasn't enough. In fact, he told his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 5. I can imagine the disciples going, oh my gosh, they already have so many rules. Now we have to do more? Because that mindset was so prevalent at that time. And I, I would really suggests that it's not too different today. We might just have a different set of rules. F.F. Bruce said that the Apostle Paul would roll over in his grave seeing that we've turned the New Testament into Torah. We've made it a list of rules. And if you do these things, you're right before God. That's what he wants. But Jesus isn't prescribing more rules or stricter rules. He was actually presenting them with a whole different game board. Things aren't measured the way you're measuring them. God doesn't look at things the way you are looking at those things. That love actually goes further than rule-keeping. You see, the rules say, okay, do this, and that's all that you're required. And love says, forget that. I will do what's necessary. Love actually goes further, but without the reason. In fact, it's unreasonable sometimes what love does for people that we care about. Ask any parent, why do I change those diapers for all those years? Because I love you. What other reason would there be? 
to care for you and to do the things that you do, go out of your way, the sleeplessness, the work and things that you do. Why do you do those things? Is it a rule? No, it's because you care. Love will do what rules will never do. And so the Pharisees provide a clear negative example of how not to be and what doesn't work throughout the Synoptic Gospels. We keep seeing this legalistic mindset. This is what the law says, and this is how we're interpreting it, and this is where you're violating the law, and there's always this villain kind of antagonist against Jesus that he's always coming back with them. There's always this kind of rift going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. So what's missing in the Synoptics? that John wants to unveil. Jesus' disciples were often concerned with what the Pharisees thought, right? I mean, there's one example where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. They tell him, your disciples eat what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They're, they're eating the grain with unwashed hands. And Jesus says, it's not what goes in a man that defiles them. It's what comes out of him. For out of his mouth comes what's in his heart. And that's what defiles a person. That's where the problem is. That's where there's the murder. And that's where there's the adultery. And that's where there's the problem is in the heart. It's not in the eating. And right after he said that, his disciples said, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And it's like, hey, did you know? Of course he knew, right? But they were concerned. They were concerned. Hey, you said something that is going to upset them. Now, I I don't know where all of you come from, but coming from a very fundamentalist background, every now and then, right, I have those kinds of thoughts like, what are the fundamentalists going to say about what I say? You know, if I said, well, I'm going to, yeah, take a yoga class. (gasps) Yoga, right? Eastern religion? You know, are you going to do some kind of meditating on your navel or something like that? Right? There's this thing that comes back because I was so, oh, it's all about having this understanding of how you see things. And sometimes those voices still creep in my head. Anyone else with me? Any? Okay. A few of you. Thank you. It's hard to let go of those voices. And the, the Pharisees were the voice for the disciples. That was their prominent voice. And so they were concerned with them. They're still worried about their opinion. And we can see that what the Pharisees were doing was wrong. But where did they go wrong? Why was it wrong? And this is an important question because where they went wrong and their idea and practice is the same error that held them back from actually believing in and trusting in Jesus. And so John takes us into a private interview to show us a Pharisee close up and by name, a name that we recognize as Nicodemus. And we're going to look at John chapter 3 now. John 3, verses 1 through 13. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. 
Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How, then, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. A very well-known passage of Scripture. And again, the question is, why does John talk about this encounter and none of the other Gospels do? What is John trying to make known in this story? We see later on in the end of John's Gospel, Nicodemus is again is there at the burial of Jesus, that he was still following Jesus, even though here it says it's at night, so it's kind of like covert. He he doesn't want people to know he's there talking with him, but even at the end, Nicodemus is there and helps with the burial of Jesus. And we're familiar with this story, but sometimes we don't recognize how uncomfortable the dialogue is, right? For both Jesus and Nicodemus, there's almost this frustration that is going on. Do you remember how to ride a bike? If you've ridden a bike, you remember. But there's no way to learn how to ride a bike without getting on a bike, right? You could write out all the information. You could say, okay, you need to start pedaling. And you could even be, you know, have to pedal at a certain mile per hour or whatever, you know, so fast that you maintain balance and you need to control where you go with the handlebars. But until you ride a bike, putting all those things together isn't going to happen the first time until you actually get on the bike and start doing it. Right, Because your brain is processing all these different things. All these connections are being made between moving those handlebars so that they don't move too far and pedaling and keeping your balance. There's a thousand different things going on in a split second time that your body is able to put together that can't be explained. It has to be experienced. And what I feel like is happening here is like, Learning to ride a bike can't be done in a book or with an instructor. And to ask, you know, tell me how to do this is really a waste of time until you develop that attitude. And this is how I see Nicodemus in the story. He wants Jesus to teach him how to ride a bike, but he wants to do that sitting there listening and taking notes. Notice that it says that, No one can do these things 
the signs that you've done. John is again using the word signs instead of miracles because it's pointing to something. And Nicodemus is saying, how do you ride a bike? And I'll come and I'll listen to you. And Jesus is saying, you can't learn it that way. You can't do it that way. And I believe this is the central problem that the Pharisees had with Jesus. You know, Jesus tells them, you got to get on the bike, Nick. And Nicodemus says, but how do you ride it? And he goes, you just got to get on the bike. When Jesus answered him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responded as if he was taking Jesus literally. How can a man be born when he is old? Right? It's like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. I need you to spell it out. And Nicodemus asked how he, a grown man, is supposed to experience a birth. And Jesus explains that it is something that God's spirit does. That there is no how as far as we're concerned. Not any more than with our first birth. Right? I had nothing to do with my first birth except being born, right? I didn't plan on it. All of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, okay, I'm here. What's going on? How did I get here? What, who are these people talking to me like they're idiots? You know, what, what's going on? I had nothing to do with it. And Jesus is saying, you, you don't have a how in how this is done. We can't say how it happens, nor can we make it happen. You can't see how it happens, but you can see the results when it does happen. And we have to kind of step back and get a better look at their conversation. One of the problems we have, even when learning another language, is what happens is you still hold on to the language you know and you start bringing that into the language you're trying to learn, which is why children can learn languages easier. They don't have that kind of hard-set understanding of language the way we do when we're older. And so Jesus uses words like the kingdom of God interchangeably with eternal life. The life of the kingdom is eternal. They're not two completely separate experiences. The synoptics show the same flexibility with those terms, but they emphasize the kingdom a lot more. There's the example in Mark's gospel where the rich ruler or the rich young man comes to Jesus. We call him a ruler, but just as a rich young man. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? And Jesus goes on and tells him the things that he can do so that he could be part of the kingdom. And so the words eternal life and the kingdom of God are used interchangeably. And so this isn't a unique thing in John's gospel. It's found in the synoptics as well. It's just our understanding of words has to be different. And that's why so many times we've got this in our minds, this thinking of eternal life is when I die and I go to heaven 
but the kingdom is present now and life in the kingdom is present now. It's not something that we will get one day. It's something that we can actually experience God's life now. That's the whole point. Notice that Jesus first says that you cannot see the kingdom. Then he says you cannot enter the kingdom. In verses 3 and verses 5, there is no vision of the kingdom of God unless someone has the experience of the kingdom of God. And whatever Jesus means by born again, it is a must. You need this to be able to see and to be able to enter. And Nicodemus, again, wants to know, how can this be? How do you do this? What do you do to get this to happen? And this time, Jesus acts surprised that Nicodemus doesn't understand. He expects him to know. I mean, you're a teacher of Israel, and this information is foreign to you? And John is showing us how clearly Jesus made this point. I mean, think about it. Jesus interacted with so many of the Pharisees, and not just Nicodemus. But thankfully, John says, you know what? I need to give a little bit more insight into this point. And here's a story that will help bring this point out. More than anything else, Israel's religious leaders were off the mark. Those who were most well-known and prominent had gotten it wrong. And it was because they were coming at it from the wrong direction. Their language, their way of thinking was keeping them from seeing and hearing what God was doing by his spirit. And first, Jesus tells Nicodemus that this is the spirit's work, that flesh can't produce it. It's not something that man can make up or man can produce. It's something that God's spirit has to do. And flesh refers to our mortal human existence. It refers to our minds, how we think, as well as our bodies. And then Jesus explains that he's presented this information in earthly terms. I'm telling you in metaphor, because that's what born again is. It's a metaphor, right? He's using something that we can understand. It's kind of funny because the evangelical word has cap- world has captured this. Born again, and it's used, even though it's only used in John's gospel. And then the apostles use it also, but not very often. But it's used in the other gospels, like out of your innermost being will come forth living water, right? And these kinds of things, like even the rich rule or the rich young man, where, you know, they said it's hard for those who are, are rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, who can? Well, with God, it's possible, right? It's really a similar story. And this is a metaphor that Jesus is using to give us understanding. And he says, what would happen if I spoke in heavenly terms? I wonder, what would happen? What does that even look like? I, I would like to know. Nicodemus would have no hope of understanding or believing, and I don't think we would either. Jesus' teaching comes from another layer of reality than that that Nicodemus occupied. These rules, this law, this structure of how to get to God is not going to cut it. It is not enough. He comes 
from above. He who comes from above is above all, he said. He's speaking of himself. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. See, Nicodemus' dilemma resulted from taking Jesus literally. He was trying to grasp what Jesus was saying rationally. He wanted his part to be spelled out for him. And this was the rule-making mindset of the Pharisees. And I think we can fall back into that so many times. I just want to know what am I supposed to do? How is it supposed to look? And then God is wanting to do something that is deeper, that is more involved, and that is more encompassing. Jesus is telling him, in a sense, you can't get there from here. Right? The way you're going about it isn't going to work. The Pharisees rejected Jesus because he did not fit in their system. He was so concerned about people and not the rules. He was so much about how to help connect people to God, not how to use rules to make people obedient to God. And they were unable to make the jump to him. How do we make that jump? How do we get from the mindset of being so about doing, so about how we follow certain things to get to God, Jesus says, the son of man, or no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses was lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, here's that word eternal life, that life that God provides. And so we see that Jesus puts himself in this place of Belief of faith, of trust. Belief is not just a thought process. It is a leaning into. It is a trusting. It is the riding the bike. You know, when I was teaching all my kids, and probably you did this too with kids, how to ride a bike, you put them on the bike after you take the training wheels and you stand behind the bike and you run with them down the street, right? And then you're going to let go and then they have to do this on their own. And what do you say when you let go? Pedal, right? You've got to pedal because at first all their thought process is using, being used on just balance. Just don't fall over. Just don't fall over. But unless they pedal they're going to fall over. Unless they move with it, it's not going to happen. And this is how gospel works. Unless you move with Jesus, it doesn't happen. You see, the, the spirit blows. You don't see where it comes from. You just see what it's doing. And he isn't saying the spirit is the wind. That's redundant. The word spirit, the word breath, the wind are all the same word in the Greek, pneuma. But this is how we see it happening, by the things it's doing. And the same is the people who are born by the Spirit. What, they, they say a prayer, they, they believe a certain thing? No, they start doing it. They start living it. 
They start walking with Jesus. People, pedal. That's what I would say. What do you do? How do I get to know Jesus? Pedal. You, you take those things that he said and you start pedaling with them. You start doing them. You start living them. What does, what God does within us by his spirit that is gracing us with eternal life, that's opening our eyes to the kingdom, that's opening his kingdom to us, is not a concept that we're supposed to fully understand. It's not about that. That's the wrong game. It's not an assignment that we have to complete. But it's his own work within us. We don't think it through or work it out in our heads. We receive it in our hearts, in our spirits, and we start experiencing it and living it and peddling. What can we do with this? I think the first thing we need to do is accept our limitation. I think there's a humility that's built into gospel. A humility that you need God. The good news is God wants you. Right? That's the good news. The humility is you can't get to God. The good news is God has gotten to you. And so there has to be that understanding of our limitations. Jesus' main concern was not to add to our religious knowledge. Let me tell you more about what you should do or how it all works. And it certainly wasn't to give us more rules. He brings us something new, something from outside what we think and what we know. And in this instance, what we know and the ways we reason are actually useless. That's not going to help. I'm not going to figure it out. Put together. It's not a litmus test that I can put how God does things and how I'm supposed to do this. That's not how the game is played. We're not going to be able to master what Jesus tells us. We can only receive it and let it unfold within us. Let it develop us. Let it work within us. When you eat, you don't have to know what the food does to provide strength and energy to your body. It's just going to do it. Knowing it isn't going to help you. Eating it will. But don't eat too much. This is a difficult challenge for us. And the best way to approach it may be as children or even better would be for us to be born into it, entering a higher layer of reality, similar to the way we came into this world and then discover it by experiencing it. You were born, you started living, you started learning, you started growing. Being born into this, you will start living, you will start learning, you will start growing but you have to be born into it. You have to lean into it. You have to get on the bike and you have to ride. As Christians in this world, our lives are 
enmeshed with earthly things. We are constantly seeing these things while we are moving towards heavenly things. And Jesus intersects earth and heaven. He is the entry point to a God-filled life. He's helping us to see how to live a spiritual life. And Jesus doesn't care if we have it all figured out logically. He only cares that we trust him enough to let the Spirit do his work within us. It's important that we recognize that God is the one doing a work and that we trust him for the work he is doing. This allows grace to take place in your life and in others' lives. Because if it is the work of God, it also is the timing of God. It is also where that person, where you are with God at that place. Some people still need someone riding, behind, running behind them, right, with that bike. My daughter, man, she was like a magnet to cars. You'd let go of that bike and she'd, shoot, like, no, not the car, bam, you know, it was like, she just like zeroed in on the car, and it took a lot of running before she got going. Some people, you see little three-year-olds, and they're riding two-wheelers like it's nothing. It's like, man, look at this guy's got it. Everyone's different. The experience everyone has is different. The key is, are you on the bike? Because you're not going to learn any other way. You got to experience God. The scriptures will help us to understand, and the history and the traditions of those who come before us and have learned can help us also. And we need all three of those if we're going to do this. It's not something you can just figure out, it's not something you can understand logically, and that's how it is, and that's the way we want it to be. You just got to get on the bike got a ride. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this encounter with Nicodemus, and I thank you for John writing this out, giving us a little bit more clarity to the problem that was there between the Pharisees and their belief structure and, and And Lord, I pray we would learn from this because many times we can fall into the same problem. We just use a different set of rules. We make a a new law up that fits us. And so I pray, God, that you would help us not fall into the same trap and the same misunderstanding, that we wouldn't play the same game, that we would learn that this isn't our work. It isn't about what we do or how we do it. This is about what you begin, what you birth in us, and then we get to unfold it, live it, and experience it. And I pray, Lord, that 
if there is someone here this morning that maybe is not experiencing it. Maybe they are still in a place of, well, I'm just trying to figure this out. I'm trying to learn what do I need to know. I I pray, Lord, that they would get on this bike that is who you are and trust you for their life, that they would allow your spirit to, to fill their lungs and their life that would open their eyes to your kingdom, to your life, that they would begin to be a part of your work. God, may we accept the humility it takes to be on this end and understand that the first step is yours, but it's already been made through Jesus. And we thank you for that, Lord. May we embrace that and may we run with it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. May you take the knowledge you have and lean into trusting God so that you may experience the life that only he gives. God bless you guys. Have an amazing week. Happy Labor's Day. If you have the day off tomorrow, enjoy. God bless you guys. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.